Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Press coverage is his only prism for viewing his own presidency. If you watch that speech as an American, you had to be thinking, what in the world is going on? Um, he, there's a new tweet out this moment from the uh -oh. president uh, uh -oh. about Bob Porker. Strange statement. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to TrumpCast, your one-stop shop for everything Donald Trump. I'm Jamel Bowie, Slate's chief political correspondent and your host for today's show. President Trump has had a rough summer. Not only has he failed to accomplish anything on policy, but he's been embroiled in scandal. Most recently, that scandal has focused on his response to the violence in Charlottesville, Virginia, where he defended a group of white nationalist protesters. Several Republican lawmakers criticized his response, and a number of appointees, including most of the members of a presidential council on manufacturing, left the administration. The result of all of this is steadily falling job approval. At last look, nearly 60% of Americans disapprove of the president's performance. These events have left Trump feeling angry, frustrated, and under siege. And this week, he lashed out. On Tuesday, he held a campaign rally in Phoenix, Arizona, where he raised against opponents— saving particular venom for the news media, which he derided as fake, failing, and even unpatriotic. On both Thursday and Friday, in a series of tweets, he raged again against Republican Party leaders like House Speaker Paul Ryan and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, as well as other less visible Republicans like Tennessee Senator Bob Corker. Rather than do the work to recover with his party and the American public, Trump has chosen to throw an extended temper tantrum. And for as much as it might soothe his soul— it complicates his job. In just a few weeks, Trump will have to negotiate bills to keep the government open and raise the debt ceiling. Attacking and alienating potential allies is one way to make that more difficult. We're going to talk to Claire Malone at 538 in just a moment. But before we jump into the rest of the show, a few housekeeping items. First, Trumpcast is going to Tejas. We'll be live from Austin's Texas Union Theater on Saturday, September 23rd at 7.30 p.m. Jacob Weisberg, Virginia Heffernan, and myself will be joined by former New York Times Executive Editor Joe Abramson and Congressman Joaquin Castro. For more information and tickets to the show, go to slate.com slash live. That's slate.com slash live. And hey, are you a member of Slate Plus? If you are, awesome. If not, you got to do it. With Slate Plus, you can get ad-free versions of Trumpcast and bonus segments. And this week, you can hear our producer, Jason DeLeon, Chat with Slate staff writer Josh Keating about Trump's foreign policy. Join Slate Plus by going to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. That's slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Okay, we'll be back in a few with Claire. But first, here are the tweets. 
If the Republican Senate doesn't get rid of the filibuster rule and go to a simple majority, which the Dems would do, they are just wasting time. The fake news is now complaining about my different types of back-to-back speeches. Well, there was Afghanistan. Somber. The big rally. Enthusiastic, dynamic, and fun. Too bad the Dems have no one who can change tones. James Clapper, who famously got caught lying to Congress, is now an authority on Donald Trump. Well, he should show you his beautiful letter to me. The only problem I have with Mitch McConnell is that after hearing repeal and replace for seven years, he failed. That should never have happened. General Kelly is doing a fantastic job. As chief of staff, there is tremendous spirit and talent in the White House. Don't believe the fake news. Strange statement by Bob Corker, considering that he is constantly asking me whether or not he should run again in 2018. Tennessee, not happy. To talk about Trump and his tantrums and what they might mean for his presidency, we have Claire Malone, a senior political writer at 538. Hi, Claire. Welcome back to Trumpcast. Hey, Jamal. Thanks for having me. So I assume you watched the Phoenix rally on Tuesday. What else would I be doing on my <laughs> evening? <laughs> <laughs> right. What else would anyone be doing with their Tuesday night? Exactly. Um, I would like to – I'm curious to know what you what you thought. I, I saw it and what I saw was sort of a president – basically having a temper tantrum and casting blame on everyone he perceives as an opponent for sort of his failures and frustrations up to the present. Um, but I know, you know, I, I've, I read a really interesting take from Rich Lowry at National Review who uh, portrayed that as basically Trump riling up his base against the media, um, which has become kind of a the object of opprobrium uh, for a conservative. So I, I'm yeah. just curious to know what you think, what you thought about that spectacle. It's funny how we we all kind of like, there's a certain media herd mentality and we all, we were all sort of saying like something could happen in Phoenix because I think everyone was very worried about heightened levels of violence and there had been civic leaders in the area who said, you know, we're worried about this rally, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of us sort of tuned in. And as I was watching it, you know, we can talk a little bit about the where he read, reads back his, his Charlottesville statements. But overall, I kept on thinking, man, this is like just more of the same Trump campaign rallies. I mean, if you had gone, if you had seen this, this if, you'd, if he'd given the same speech, you know, a year and a half ago, I would have been like, yeah, this is like kind of what he does. Now, that's not, I mean, you know, some of that's, that's probably a certain, comes off a certain jadedness, right, that we're all sort of used to Trump talking crazy this way. And it's, it does obviously make a difference when he's doing it from, you know, I guess, ex-cathedra, from the, from the throne of the presidency or whatever you want to say. It, it, it carries the weight, the president's words, you know, when, when he's saying all this stuff, it does carry greater weight than when you're just a, a candidate. But, you know, we've been talking a little bit around here at 538 about the way he's using these rants against the media. And, you know, we've been talking about 
can you win an election, to, like almost purely based on riling up your base about the media? And I think it's an interesting question. I'm not sure you can, but it certainly seems to be something that Trump's really focused on, right? He knows he knows his sweet spots. He knows he can throw red meat, you know, to his base and by, by talking about the media. And I think as he kind of goes through a pretty chaotic period and a period where he's not really getting anything done legislatively, it's, it's a pretty good distraction. So that's kind of what I saw. It was sort of more of the same from sort of campaign Trump, because let's remember it was a campaign rally. But then again, he is the president. So it's a, it's a bit, you know, it is worrying. You know, 2020 is still some time away, but that is a really interesting question, whether or not he could win an election based solely on antipathy for the news media. And, you know, ordinarily, I, I feel like I'd say, oh, of course, of course not. Um, but last year, he was extremely unpopular with most voters. Um, you know, 60 something percent of registered voters said something to the effect of, were agreed with the statement, right, that he wasn't qualified to be president, that like he lacked the temperament and skills to do it. And some number of those people still voted for him anyway. And while some of that might just be they disliked Hillary Clinton more, there definitely is that question of are enough people in, in, in enough places tolerant enough of Trump and supportive enough of the media bashing to deliver him a second term, even if, let's say, in you know summer of 2020, his approval rating is basically where it is now, which is like, 36, 37%. Yeah. I mean, because those were people that the pollsters didn't see coming, right? They were kind of like newly invigorated by Trump. And if people perceive him to be speaking truth to power, and I think the media is a really convenient stand-in for the, like, the elites of American society, right? And I think it's a, you know, it's a pretty, it's an interesting and so far effective way to get a certain a certain base riled up. I mean, but Republicans in general distrust um, the mainstream media, which is something that we know from from surveys. So, yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. You know, there's also, I, I don't know how, you know, the media can't really combat it. Other, you know, I actually think it's sort of a self-defeating cycle to have too many op-eds about how uh, Trump is, you know, a dangerous figure with his rhetoric towards media. I know that's probably an unpopular thing to say, and, and maybe some of your listeners would disagree with me, but I think there is a certain amount of, like, the media just has to keep their heads down and keep doing their job and sort of, I guess, not buy too much into the, the Trump the Trump bait. Don't, don't, don't provide a target for right, him. exactly. Which is hard, you know, because it's, it's, it's right there. <laughs> and it's, an attack. It's, a part, it's a sort of semi-personal attack on a large group of people. So you mentioned, uh, and I wanted to get to this too, uh, the, the spectacle of the president kind of reading back his responses to the Charlottesville violence. And I found that... Uh, selective. 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 Quote. Selective. selective <laughs> I mean, that was what was so strange about it, right? That yeah. he read back his sort of on paper Saturday and Tuesday statements and omitted all the extemporaneous stuff where he went on, or in the first case, he you know, said there was violence on many sides. And in the second case, he said that essentially, you know, why, why, why we got to pick on these white supremacists. And, and what's interesting is that those extemporaneous parts were on camera, right? They were recorded live. We all saw them. And then he's at this rally saying, no, they didn't happen. Here's what I said. And can you believe the media? That wasn't enough for the media. And I found that interesting, not just as sort of like an attack on the media, but as this almost sort of attempt to craft an alternate reality in real time for yeah. his supporters. Yeah, I think it's, um, I don't know if Trump does it 
on purpose, where it's just sort of his version of magical thinking. But I see it actually as sort of, you know, memory is so malleable. So I might have a memory of of a vacation I went on when I was 10 years old. And over the years, you know, I'll sort of pick up people's, I'll hear other people tell this, you know, this story about the same event. And eventually their point of view will be incorporated into mine, right? And so my memory shifts. Memory is a, is a malleable thing in, in a lot of ways. And to me, what I thought was interesting about that speech was, he's creating a new memory for his supporters, right? So he's sort of, he's sort of saying, no, they were all lying about me, right? I didn't, you know, I was, I had good intentions when I said all those things and they, they horribly spun it. And so I think that was kind of, it was sort of like a memory making enterprise to sort of shift that hardcore base of supporters and say like, this was all misconstrued in the media and this is what really happened, which I think, you know, could work for certain people, for certain people. I don't think it works for everyone, obviously, um, because the majority of the American public uh, disapproves of him. But it is certainly like a pretty bald faced attempt at manipulating something that happened in the past. And I mean, when you when you if you if you take that and then couple it with, you know, wide widespread distrust of the media and then partisanship, it actually is pretty conceivable that, you know, you yeah. take a poll in a couple of weeks and ask, you know, did the President Trump say many sides were responsible for violence in Charlottesville and some number of respondents might respond, no, he didn't say that. Right. Because we because it's also there are so many there's so many news events for Americans to keep track of, quite frankly, right? Like you're like there's shootings, there are political events with Trump, there's things that are happening overseas, and everyone sort of you can you can very easily see everyone's news feeds getting crowded, your brain getting crowded, and you saying, well, sort of alighting events and not you know not being certain of the facts. I think it's a pretty it's a pretty reasonable thing to expect that some people will sort of say, you know, won't won't believe the actual record because uh, you know human brains are are funny things. Right. So in addition, <laughs> um, in addition to Phoenix, uh, there's there's also been you know this morning and I want to say yesterday as well, uh, the president kind of going off on Republicans in Congress, attacking Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan, Jeff Flake, who really seems to dislike Jeff Flake. Uh, <laughs> Bob Corker in Tennessee. And to me, you know, to me, all of this is of a piece. It's it's the president lashing out against the fact that he's just had a very abysmal first summer as president um, from low job approval to the failure of uh, Obamacare appeal to the Charlottesville stuff. I mean, everything, everything together. Um, and he's in a pretty low place. Um, but looking ahead to September, right, we have the debt ceiling, we have uh, we got to fund the government. And it does seem that he set, seem like he's setting himself up for further failure by unloading on Republicans like this. Uh, and s- setting aside the fact that, like, compared to your typical president, he's unusually vulnerable to impeachment or removal or whatever. Um and so it doesn't seem like a good idea to be antagonizing congressional leaders uh, when you're in that position. But this feels like again, it feels less like a strategy than a tantrum. Yeah, it is. It is odd. I mean, I think um, he doesn't understand how the legislative process works. I think he understands how campaigns work, roughly, right? Which is he gets that sort of like battle thing pretty well, but. You know, he he shouldn't be alienating congressional Republicans. What I do think is interesting about, you know, he's called out Jeff Flake. He's called out Corker, you know, Corker today. I'm talking to you on Friday, you know, saying the people of Tennessee aren't happy. Let's see what happens in 2018. 
some of this I do think is just the politics of the personal. Trump is sort of notoriously and historically very petty. Um, <laughs> petty, petty is actually the exact the exact word for it. He's very. He's the Taylor he, Swift of politics. He's Taylor Swift of politics because I don't listen to Taylor Swift, but I, I watch a lot of Game of Thrones. Uh, <laughs> he's like the Cersei Lannister, except like way less able. Yeah, it's and it's it's sort of it's interesting because I guess the the broader read of it, or if we're tr- if we're trying to spin out the pettiness into what's a, what's a Trumpian worldview, um, he kind of wants to see more Trump-like figures in office, right? So if you look at Flake in Arizona, he's sort of Trump. Trump is kind of courting like three different possible primary challenges challengers to Flake. So there's Kelly Ward, there's this guy Jeff Dewitt a guy, Robert Graham, and he's kind of wants to pe- to get people who are mo- like more like Trump. I think he's sort of, uh, which which actually, you know, if you're if you're a Trump supporter, you might really like that. You know, you're against the establishment Republicans, and you say, I want to change, and Trump isn't afraid to again speak truth to power. So, I think that's his like he that's what he sees. He's like looking forward to 2018 and getting back, you know, being back in that campaign mode. But all this, you know, you have to think about working to get whatever he wants passed next, you know, the the tax reform, if he wants to get money for his for his border wall, what's what's going to happen? What's the stuff that's going to happen behind the scenes? I mean, he's picking a pretty bad scab with Mitch McConnell, you know. The guy has a the guy has a super PAC of his own that he can <laughs> that he can leverage. Um so it is it's just it's it's Trump kind of creating a lot of complications for his his White House team with with the tweets and with the the personal statements, right? And and, and just to could sort of spin out the attacks on Flake uh, and Corker, if you know F- Jeff Flake is somewhat vulnerable next year um, uh, to a Democratic challenger, and so uh, um, if he has to fight a primary, and if he loses that primary, then I think that seat all of a sudden becomes genuinely up for grabs. And even if he doesn't lose it, I think it demonstrates some weakness. And, and same with Corker. I mean, if the world in which Corker is suddenly vulnerable uh, in Tennessee is is a world that is not looking good for Trump or the Republican Party. And it is interesting that, like, even for for as much as Trump has these sort of native political instincts when it comes to himself, he he cannot seem to even conceptualize, you know, the notion that he has to maintain political standing with other right. Republicans. Like everyone talks about, I think that's right, where, where you're looking forward to, if you're Mitch McConnell, you know, everyone talks about Mitch McConnell playing three-dimensional chess. It's not that, it's not that hard. I mean, Trump is basically playing like one-dimensional checkers um, with, the, with the petty <laughs> feud things. But like McConnell realizes that if you, yeah, that if you weaken your primary candidates, particularly in Arizona, which by the way, like let's remember the Clinton people at some one point during the election thought they could win Arizona you right. know, by turning out Latinos. So it is, you know, they've got, you know, they've got a young female Democrat who's probably going to run. And that could be a very interesting, you know, she could be, she could be very energetic and interesting and a new face. And I think if Trump was really paying attention beyond sort of what's right in front of his face, he would see, yeah, I don't, we don't want to lose that Arizona seat or we don't want to, we don't want to take that chance. So it is, it is fascinating to watch him not think just like two steps ahead, which, which his team has obviously done. You know, you can feel however you want to about the Trump White House, but the people, I, I, I hazard a guess that most of his advisors do not want him openly attacking U.S. senators like this from his party. The presidency isn't going to get any easier for Donald Trump um, and things on the horizon. And I mentioned the debt ceiling and 
potential shutdown funding the government um, uh, could be quite difficult in part because there are just different competing interests within the Republican Party. Um, so do we think we're going to do you think <laughs> do you think this tension is going to continue um, as as the frustrations build? And I, I sort of wonder, I mean, what I wonder more broadly is if it's the case that at every obstacle, the president attacks fellow party members and potentially weakens them. Does that end up creating a, a wedge between Trump and other Republicans or widening an existing wedge between Trump and other Republicans uh, versus a universe where, where he didn't do this at all? Because a lot of there's a lot of, you know, complaints from the left and, and analysis that, you know, Republicans are not going to break from Trump um, uh, because they see they see him as driving a policy agenda that they want. But I have to imagine that there is increasingly a little tolerance for just essentially being roasted in front of the country um, uh, yeah. on Twitter. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, you can certainly see a scenario where Trump just becomes more and more isolated from everyone else in his party. I do think that it, I, I am one of those people that think that it will take a lot for Republicans to break with Trump in in any like real significant way enough to like say impeach him, right? <laughs> you know. Um, but it does make you think about what does the character of this presidency look? Let's say eighteen months in, right? Yeah. Like, will he be doing governing mostly by splashy executive orders or trying to do more sort of Arizona type rallies because he's realized that he doesn't really understand how to sort of push a legislative agenda. I mean, he doesn't seem to have that much interest in promoting, like for instance, healthcare. He was really not, not really out there selling his, his thing. You know, it, I, I also think that he's, because he's a political newcomer, he's sort of been, he was sort of forced into that healthcare thing, which I don't think he really understood either intuitively or I'm not sure intellectually I, I, that he, that he did a lot of brushing up on that issue before. You know, maybe if he'd started with something like infrastructure, which is a little bit, it's more, you know, broadly popular. It's something that, you know, kind of goes to Trump's like made in America, make America great again thing, right? Which is we're going to improve the literal bones of this country, right? We're going to build the bridges. And, and those are all things that voters can see and can get very intuitively. And instead, he waded into this very fraught debate and now is a little kind of miffed by it all. I don't, but I, yeah, I don't know what the presidency looks like if he becomes isolated from his party in a significant way. I think it does, like, it changes things a lot. And, you know, I think we've seen that the, that the you know, U.S. Congress can be a fickle, kind of unpredictable thing at times, especially in the past, like, six weeks. So I'm not really sure. Like, let's let's check back in in, in, in what, eight months, nine months? Yeah, nine, nine months. Yeah, yeah. Let's check <laughs> back see, in. Yeah, and see what happens. See what happens. <laughs> All right. We have been talking to Claire Malone, senior political writer at uh, 538, about Trump and all of his, uh, I guess, complaining. Thanks Thank for having me, Jamal. <laughs> Thank you, Claire. <laughs> And that's the show for today. As always, you should follow us on Twitter. We're at Real Trumpcast. But more importantly, you should also head to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating and a review. We'll have a link in the show notes where you can do just that. It helps the show out, and we'd love to hear what you think. Today's show is produced by Jason DeLeon with an assist from AC Valdez. I'm Jamel Bowie. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. <laughs>